Hi there, welcome to the Matthias J. Barker podcast. This is a podcast about mental health and moving towards what's meaningful, even despite hardship. Today I got to talk to Dr. Hilary McBride, which has been kind of a dream um, of mine for a long time. She's someone that was especially formative for me, really like leading into the decision to get my master's in counseling. And her work, maybe I discovered uh, firstly through um, something called the Liturgist podcast, which was a podcast kind of about... Um, well, we talk a lot about that, what it was about. It's been about a lot of different things, but uh, maybe the intersection of faith and art and psychology and kind of conversations specifically around deconstruction of Christian faith and and maybe the ways that Christian faith has been um, destructive and trying to reconstruct something more helpful. So that's that's all kind of in the water with the Liturgist podcast. And Dr. Hilary McBride is um, a psychologist who contributed to that. And she has a really just incredible body of work outside of just like conversations on faith, though, in Christianity. She talks a lot about um, eating disorders and embodiment, and she's doing a lot of really compelling, interesting research right now. Um, and so we had a really, I think, it was like, how do I describe it? I, I think for a long time, Hillary was seen kind of as this, um, this sage on top of the mountain, this, this, uh, this teacher that if I can only be more like her, then, then that means I would be a good therapist. If I could just embody and, and practice saying things the way that she says them. And there was almost kind of this, uh, hero worship, <laughs> um, that I fell into, especially earlier on. And, and kind of as I've just processed, I don't know, just my own self-work and, and becoming a clinician myself and, noticing what it's like to be in the helping field and work with people. I think it's humanized her in a lot of really healthy ways. And so this conversation was just kind of an interesting doorway to pass through, to have a conversation with the human being, uh, Dr. McBride, not just kind of my hero or idol. It was, um, it was really refreshing in that sense to just be face to face with someone along the same journey as I. And if you've been following these conversations that I've been having on my podcast, it's that's been a lot of the case. Like I, I think I start out most of these podcasts with trying to describe to these men and women like how impactful their work has been for me and and even working through the nerves of getting to talk to these just icons in the field that have been um, uh, just so formative for how I see myself and how I work and my work as a clinician. This, this whole podcast, getting to talk to probably the past, I don't know, four or five people like... Um, that I've gotten an interview has been an exercise in uh, taking myself off the pedestal as I'm taking my heroes off the pedestal, if that makes sense. And that's not to say anything disparaging about any of the people I've talked to. They're, they're all incredible. I just think what I mean is it's, it's been an interesting thing to notice in myself to watch me shift my own, um, I don't know, the way that I interact with people that I really respect and care about. And, and I say all that because I think part of our conversation uh, with Dr. McBride today was, was talking about this dynamic of kind of being the sage on top of the mountain that people kind of treat therapists or psychologists like these all-knowing uh, bearers of wisdom and truth. And if only you do everything they say, then you can be healed and actualized. And, and uh, we confront that idea. And I think she does a really beautiful job just detailing the ways that that can go awry and just how our culture and the systems of our culture have contributed to this hierarchy of the truth holders and 
I don't know, the, the people who need to become actualized. And, and we just have a whole conversation all in that space. And then we shift the conversation a little bit into a discussion on eating disorders and um, what it looks like to heal from trauma, what it looks like to heal from the ways that we've been hurt. Uh, we talk about embodiment. We talk about um, finding that healing in community. And it was just such a refreshing conversation. It's been super formative for me. I, it's such a pleasure to get to talk to her. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Hillary McBride, I'm so thankful to get to talk to you. This is this is really a pleasure. I've been following your work for a long time. So this this conversation feels particularly exciting. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. That means so much <laughs> to me to hear you say. Yeah, I, I started following your work, I think. Um, I don't know how much of your audience uh, found you on The Liturgists, but that, that was where I found you. Mm. And um, for those listening, The Liturgists is kind of a podcast, just kind of talking about the intersection of faith and psychology and justice. And um, I don't know, how would you describe it? I guess I, I have an impression of it, but what's what's your tagline for <laughs> what, oh, yeah. what that project was <laughs> yeah. when you started? Uh, I think it's gone through a number of iterations and now the project looks a little bit different, but the kind of the orientation when I got involved was talking about interesting topics from the intersection of faith, art, and science. Yeah. And, uh, I think we did that pretty well sometimes. Yeah. Other times leaned more heavily into one or the other, but got to have mm -hmm. such rich conversations with people that I would have otherwise never have met and mm -hmm. uh, learn things and learn alongside people. So. Yeah. I think your addition, your voice to that conversation was so inspiring for me personally, just never really thought of being a counselor, even mm. really, um, when I started listening to the liturgist, I was kind of on the track to be a pastor actually. And, mm. and um, was kind of going through a season of deconstruction myself, where I think that's where a lot of people find the liturgists is like a home for people that don't feel like they have a home. Mm. And uh, I don't know. And so went through my own process of kind of reconstructing what I was going to do with my life, I guess, because I was, I was kind of, I think this is like 2016, 2015, just feeling kind of baseless and not really knowing, okay, I was going to be a pastor my whole life. That was the trajectory. And then feeling a lot of questions and uncertainty around my faith to the point where I didn't feel super confident being a leader in that space mm. um, until I had that figured out and, and ultimately looped back around to, to Christian faith in a way that's really meaningful. Mm. And I feel like I have an expression of that that aligns with my values and makes the world a better place. And I don't feel like I have to hold these really conflicting spaces right. that seem to be disintegrated and conflicting. Mm. I don't know. That's a long story, but, but uh, the, oh, whole, the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole point of it maybe was, was that you're, you're just, how do I describe it? You came in with such this warm, inviting and pastoral voice and backing that maybe with this breadth of insight that you gathered from psychology. And I was, and it really gave me maybe a first hmm. um, look into, Oh, psychology could be something that I'm interested in. Hmm. Um, growing up wow. in a world where psychology was almost kind of antithetical to what the church was doing. Yes. And that. I was like, well, I like what Hillary's doing. She's <laughs> <laughs> everything she says makes me feel great and clarifies things that felt <laughs> confusing forever. And especially oh. maybe your, your talk on shame. Mm. And, um, and maybe that was the first time I came into a lot of the ideas um, around just maybe how shame was like this key motivator for me to try to ascend into what I felt like I was supposed to be, to feel accepted, yes. to feel loved, to feel like I belonged. Mm -hmm. And your language just around how that ironically enough can create the opposite effect. 
Yes. It was oh. really impactful for me. And so Thank I'm really you. thankful for your work and for your voice in that season of my life. And, mm. and then I think creating, not maybe directly, but just creating an openness in my heart towards looking into a career in clinical practice and working with people one-on-one -on -one through uh, not just kind of confined to Christendom, but opening up to all sorts of life experiences. It's, you've been an instrumental piece of that. So I'm really oh, thankful for you. Oh my goodness. I'm just so touched mm -hmm. to hear this story. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to tell me about that. Yeah. That is, um, I'm feeling the, the sense of aloneness that comes from clinical practice and often doing recording work, especially now in COVID times mm -hmm. where everything is just like me in, in an office looking at a computer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A really hard to remember or feel the impact of interconnectedness beyond that. Mm -hmm. And I don't get to hear stories back very often in this way. So thank you so much for taking the time to, mm -hmm. to share with me the impact my work has had on you. That's very, very meaningful for me to yeah. know. I'm so glad it's, um, mm -hmm. I, I feel that with you. It's, it's a strange, I was thinking about it recently where, um, mm -hmm. I, I recently kind of just jumped into the spotlight almost on accident where I went from like zero to a million followers in like one month on TikTok and, uh, just making videos about psychology and, and then, uh, kind of had all these people sending all these meaningful little messages on Instagram, just about how things that I've been talking about have been meaningful, but felt almost this disembodied kind of wall between, Right. okay, I'm, I'm doing these things online. I see a lot of view counts. I see uh, a lot of meaningful comments from these profile pictures that represent people, right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I think, you yeah. Know, and, yeah. And it's a, it's an odd thing. It's an odd thing feeling mm. in this COVID world where we feel particularly disconnected in, in mm -hmm. a very important way. Mm. That's kind of what I hear as you describe that. Yes, absolutely. Oh, um, there's so much in your story too that I really resonate with in terms of, um, I think what, what therapy, what psychology does well is step outside of the discipline that it's mm -hmm. in to yeah. create a new, a new human fabric. Mm. And I, I lament the the professionalization of the practice of psychology to a degree mm. because it sort of um, cordons it off into its these rigid boundaried areas of discipline. And yet I've always sort of played around with this idea that if if we were in healthy societies, if we were in healthy communities, we wouldn't need psychology so much. Mm. Um, maybe it would be helpful because we would get research and understanding and we could put ideas on the experiences and phenomena that we are already living through, but there is something about extracting care mm. and moving, moving to someone outside of your community to repair the wounds that happened within the community that you're in mm. that, Oh, feels like it stings a little bit. And I'm yeah. so glad I get to do this. And perhaps it's idealistic and, um, like I'm painting a picture of a, of an, like in a inaccessible utopia perhaps, mm -hmm. but I, I love this idea that all of us could be therapeutic mm -hmm. or all of us could know psychology and all of us could begin to understand ourselves better mm -hmm. and consequently be more compassionate with each other. And that doing so would, would subtly over time, weave new strands of humanity and togetherness between us. So it's like giving uh, psychology away feels mm. deeply important for me. Um, so well put. Yeah. What do you think leads to that 
that separateness where psychology is almost kind of put as I don't know functionally it almost feels like a version of um like the uh the oracle the the priest <laughs> yeah. the, the the person you go to with all the wisdom that carries all the traditions mm. and then you go to this person to get healed and then you come back mm. and it's almost this isolated far off place where you go to the mountaintop mm. to talk to the sage at the top with all the wisdom that's that's almost right that's exactly. a dramatic way to point paint it but, <laughs> but some people think of therapy that way like uh -huh. oh well if i just go to therapy then then yada 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 where do you think all these expectations and this almost mm. separateness come from around psychology well i can't help but hear the systems that separate us mm, yeah in that so i'm thinking about the process of colonization that takes us out of uh, wisdom traditions that root us into the land mm. uh, i'm thinking about hierarchies of power particularly things like systems of the the academy or androcentrism mm. or patriarchy or ways that we somehow put i mean white supremacy even like putting putting together hierarchies or categories of people in which somebody knows and somebody doesn't know and somebody has more and somebody has less and any of the systems that fragment us from each other i think create a sense of um and maybe even within that, I should argue this, this idea that the perhaps a legacy that has been so wounding for so many of us that comes from a faith tradition where we have been told you are, your heart is deceitful. You don't know the answer. You can't ever know the answer, but somebody else uh, who's closer, closer to God, somebody else who's got a really good theology, a really good understanding, maybe in this situation, a really good theoretical framework. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, this other person who's done work to get close to what's true will tell you the right way. And so I think that system is, um, th there are lots of things that prop that up and there are lots of different ways we see that replicated even, I mean, I would go so far as to talk about different teaching environments. And I, I've been impacted by the work of Freire and the pedagogy of the oppressed, looking at how we co-construct together and sort of pulling apart this idea that the person at the top is the one who has all the answers and then gives people information to regurgitate within their own life. And I, so I think it's complex. I think it's so hard to be able to point at one thing because it's so many things that shape the way that we exist together. But I, yeah, there, I think there's something particular about this narrative that you, you can't trust yourself and somehow you're bad and somebody else will tell you how to find the way is, is particularly problematic. And I don't want to suggest that in, in our individualized state that we infinitely and completely know what's wise and what's right. Cause I think that wisdom is an interpersonal process as well as an embodied and a interconnected process, not a, not a singular event, not a something that's held in one single person. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think that there is something to, to be said for how it is to have, how it would be to have communities in which people could co-construct wisdom, could support each other to come to conclusions that really honored what's happening inside and and the inside world is mysterious and um sometimes needs to be concretized and we have a hard time getting access to it at times but i think yeah i'm just those are I'm good just, I, yeah. I as you were talking i just think about 
this almost this dance is, is the metaphor that came into mm. mind that I even feel kind of pulled into when people come to me, you know, treating me like mm. I'm the guy at the top that has all the answers. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's a part, part of my ego that feels really good about that. Right. There's, there's a part of me that wants to ascend to that, that wants to be, but then that's quickly transformed into this fear, this imposter type fear that mm. like, oh, I'm going to let them down and then they're going to be mad at me and reject me. Mm. And it's this dance that we've almost kind of agreed to where, I don't know. And th there's a bunch of different theories, I guess we could put to it. The thing that jumps to my mind is psychology almost has this pluralistic ability to kind of transcend immediate worldviews in a lot of ways, or it can, it has the ability mm. to, right? And so you can, I, t I talk, I have clients from tons of different religions and worldviews and different political leanings and and, uh, and they all, you know, find something helpful, hopefully, in, in what I'm talking about or what I'm saying mm -hmm. or our relationship together. And so I think in our culture, maybe my exposure to it, there's this elevation of the psychologist, of the yes. psychotherapist in this space yeah. that is respected, irrespective of worldview. Mm. And then um, that, that the guru can kind of rise to this space where they're mm -hmm. the person at the top of the mountain, even though ironically, and even as I hear you talking about, that's actually something we're trying to disrupt. We're trying to actually right. bring people into an awareness of the wisdom that's actually held within their personal yes. experience, within their bodies, within the relationships around them. And that the healing isn't within the, the piece of wisdom that I have to offer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not within just finally thinking the right things. Yes. It's, it's uh. I don't know. How would you describe that? Mm. Like, like well, I, I'm just having so many like yes and amen moments as you're talking, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I think we've, as we've gotten fragmented from ourselves and from each other, we've moved higher and higher into our defenses around believing that cognition and the right way of thinking or the right way of knowing will be, will be the panacea, mm. will be the thing that kind of cures everything for us. And that that really, the more that we understand kind of the neuroscience of psychopathology and interpersonal neurobiology, we see that that thinking is actually kind of the last thing that happens in a series of processes that create yeah, yeah. the sense of a person. Yeah, so when we when we play into that idea that having the right, just get the next right piece of information or just get the next right um, you know thing to think, do you tell me what I should be doing? Unfortunately, we we don't actually come down to the place where the pain started in the first place or where mm -hmm. the wound is or where the healing yeah. could be activated inside. But I, you know, I, I, the more that I learn, I, I think this was a really big wake up call for me in, in my doctoral program. The more I learn about different ways of understanding truth or knowledge. So looking at epistemology, looking at ontology, even looking at things that we think of as being seemingly objective, like a research process. How could research be anything besides collect, collecting data, mm -hmm. disseminating data, and coming up with conclusions that are objective? The more that I see the way that these systems that we've talked about that fragment us and influence even the construction of what we believe is true. So seeing the way that a person's lived positionality shapes the kind of research questions they ask mm -hmm. or the methodology that they select for research or for therapy yeah. Yeah. really starts to help us see that even though psychology is somewhat like uh, has some pluralism to it, or it can really, it can be wide and vast enough to hold that 
we as the individual within the practice of psychology have to be thoughtful about how our lived positionality shapes the particular parts of psychology that we like to use. Mm. So it's not, it's not unusual for me, particularly in, so I, um, I teach in the university, I teach in graduate programs around mm -hmm. counseling psychology. It's not unusual for me to see people who have different lived realities to find different sections of home within psychology. Mm, yeah. Uh, particularly, let's say like people who've benefited from a system that perpetuates an idea of, of objective truth and um, supremacy culture mm. are more likely to choose certain kinds of therapies to use with their clients that reinforce you are the expert. Like mm. there, we, you and I know this, perhaps some of the mm -hmm. listeners do or don't. There are some kinds of therapies where the therapist is the objective observer who does say, no, this is a distortion in what's happening for you. It's mm. bad. You need to make that go away because it's creating this psychopathology for you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So even within psychology, we have to be careful. We have to guard against the ways that the oppress oppression and hierarchies mm -hmm. shut out certain ways of knowing. Um, I'm thinking about Thomas Sass and the myth of mental illness. I don't know if you ever read. I haven't this. yet, no. <laughs> but just the way that we, we even label psychopathology in the West is a Western construct, whereas in other cultures, mm -hmm there are some of these experiences that might seem transpersonal or really detached from reality where these are the shamans. These are the people yeah. who actually have the most wisdom and how we draw boundaries around what is healthy and what is not healthy is a function of our Western mm. post-colonial mm. perspective. And so yeah. as much as I like to think of psychology as like the as the thing that can be accessible to everybody, it's so important mm -hmm. to keep remembering, at least for me, that that there are biases even within 100%. it. Yeah, I, I, I've thought that for a long time. You put so clearly what, what I felt mm. in my heart where I'm, and, and maybe the way I was describing it, which isn't nearly as eloquent as you just did, but just like, I feel like we're philosophizing so much mm -hmm. in this field and we're not saying that we are. Like we're pretending right. Right. that, well, this is just the science. And then here's right. all of the things I'm going to kind of hook on to that yeah. maybe really weighty authoritative term um, mm. that you have to accept too, or you're going against the doctor's recommendation. Mm. And what a, what a heavy um, authoritative, like it, it reminds me a lot of, I think what people do in the church when they're just saying like, well, the Bible says, right. And right. then they impart this interpretation or how that's supposed to be worked out on the same level as the authoritative thing that they're appealing right. to. And in yeah. psychology, like you're totally right where there's, there's these different realms where we're either kind of imparting, like, this is the pathway to healing. This needs to be rejected this thing needs to be accepted and more opened up and you need to become more, more open to this idea. And your resistance to that idea is proof that you're not healed. And, <laughs> and then on the other end, if like, if you're not listening to me or, or like the resistance is pathologized too, mm -hmm. like instead of mm -hmm. seeing, no, we're in relationship and you have experiences, I have experiences. Maybe I'm just not listening to you well enough. Maybe I'm yes. imposing or imparting something. And, and, and I just have, I just notice in my own ability to like write clinical notes and add to people's medical record, I can completely pathologize them disagreeing yes. with me if I want to. Yes. 
and what a distinct power. How do you, how do you see that power (laughs) kind of working in, you know, when Uh I say like philosophizing in science, Mm -hmm. where do you draw those distinctions? What, what does that make you think of? Immediately I feel taken back to my own lived experience outside of the realm of, I mean, it would be so easy in this conversation for us to do the very thing that we're critiquing. So I feel drawn (laughs) to like, how about I go into my narrative uh, for a moment? (laughs) But for me in my own experience and struggle with mental illness, a big shift was in realizing the function that it served and how to love the way that the illness was protecting me from a pain that was too big for me to feel. And to be drawn into a compassionate perspective of my pain and of my suffering, even as it hurt me and other people, was a complete flip on what I think, what I think diagnoses do wrong uh, or the pain of being sectioned off into some sort of label that makes us feel subhuman. It it validated in a way the wisdom of some something in me, would we call it psyche or soul or beingness that knew a way to survive in the face of unbearable pain. And, and those ways of looking at our suffering and our personhood feel like we can hold both. We can acknowledge that there is pain here, but we can also see, um, what in my theoretical framework we might call transformance, this the transformance drive, this capacity hardwired inborn to survive and thrive and heal that is always there, mm. always available to us, even visible in our suffering, even visible in the way that we hurt other people and ourselves at times. Mm. Can you open up that idea of transformance and, and how that mm. what you're describing? I mean, maybe if we were talking about it using faith language, we would call it Imago Dei, or we would call it the, you know, I'm thinking about some of the Jewish mystic traditions around like this, the spark that's in everybody. And it's the inborn nature that drives us towards something more that says, I'm going to take my medication in the morning, even though there's this other part of me that wants to die and doesn't want to take care of myself. It's just the name for that drive inside mm-hmm. of us that somehow chooses life. It's like the often when, when reading and writing and learning about transformance, we'll see images like the, you know, the shoot of grass that pops up between concrete. Like how did that happen? What, what inside of life and the ground found a way to get through the crack in the concrete. And that's, that's the visual metaphor of what is happening or what is available in all of us. And as therapists, I think one of our mandates is actually to become more skilled in looking for that. Because often when people come in, they're trying to take care of themselves somehow, but are probably over identified with the pain and the suffering of what's happening and haven't yet been able to see like, how is, how have you cared for yourself by shutting down? How have you cared for yourself by self-harming? How have you cared for yourself by numbing all of your pain through substance use? What, what goodness in you that knew to reach for something to numb the pain 
when you had nothing else to reach for. Wow. Can we honor that together for a moment and to give people compassionate eyes towards their own survival system is I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give people. Wow. Um, that metaphor is so impactful. So striking that, that mm -hmm. idea of the concrete, cause I, yeah. I feel that way personally, like that often that's, that feels like this barrier, but the gentle, um, even just as you were kind of in, in the video, you were using your hands to kind of analogize that, but just this gentle kind of opening up and awakening of this grass through the concrete. It, it's not through force or mm -mm. making sure the concrete goes away. It's almost in the midst of that concrete and there's that's actually part of that process yes um i can yes. imagine that there's some listeners that maybe have encountered what you just said for the first time when you said that the way that you used the alcohol the way that you used mm. the self-harm was actually you caring for yourself i can imagine there's some confused ears yes out there listening what do you mean by that <laughs> yeah. well I'll use again, my narrative to talk about this, to, to give it some texture. Mm -hmm. um, so when I talk about mental illness and my lived experience of that, I think about a period of my life where I struggled with an eating disorder that had me in and out of treatment for a while. And then some sort of concurrent disorders showed up at the same time. It's pretty typical for someone who's malnourished for a very long time to also be experiencing some detachment from reality and depression and anxiety. And, uh, at some one point I had an OCD diagnosis since there are this whole cluster of things that went along with it. And because of the shame, because of the shame of the eating disorder, because of the fact that my family was desperately trying to help me to heal and I wasn't ready to, there was another layer of secrecy around that. So lying and deceiving and protecting and, um, just a lot of deception because I wasn't ready to heal yet. I wasn't ready to say yes to doing something different. So when I look back on that story in my life, I think about how the eating disorder was doing something. And the way that I got there was to explore the pain and the fear of what it would be like to be without it. Because as soon as I was thinking about what it would be like to be without it, I was encountered with the fact that I needed it to help me with something. Yeah. And there were, I mean, a multitude of things that it was helping me with, but helping me with primarily managing what felt otherwise like overwhelming, completely overwhelming, um, panic, fear, shame, yeah. loneliness, isolation, emotion, dysregulation, yeah. really big feelings that I had no, no other way to manage, didn't know how to be with. Yeah. And so I could see how the, the coping of the eating disorder developed to offer some strategies when I didn't know how to self-soothe otherwise. So in eating disorder language, I mean, this was kind of the first place that I got introduced to some of these ideas, but we often talk about eating disorders as friends and foe. And when you're trying to help a person massage their relationship to a particular behavior, if we rip it from them, right? This is going to be quite threatening if that something is doing something for them. Yeah. So we get to explore, how is it helping you? What did it do for you? And in exploring how the eating disorder, I'll just keep using this example for me was a way to manage intense, big feelings. It also told me what the answer was. Oh, well, I need to find other ways to soothe myself. If I feel guilt or shame 
And then I started to get to ask questions like, why do I feel so much shame? And where does that shame come from? And how is the eating disorder in a way helping me with the shame, but actually adding to it? And maybe there's another way to like evacuate the shame completely instead of choosing something that then reinforces the shame. So what we, what we say when we're acknowledging the usefulness of something destructive is not that it's ultimately good in a capital G sense. Like, yes, I want to condone this behavior. Yes, please keep binge drinking or please keep mm -hmm. engaging in this kind of reckless um, behavior, whatever it is, or self-harming yourself. But to say, oh, something inside of you reached for this because it didn't have anything else. And instead of giving this dysfunctional behavior or this survival behavior, all of our energy and attention, let's give the energy and the attention to the wound that it was trying to help you deal with. Mm. Wow. What was there before that strategy was needed? Mm. Did you feel lonely? Did you feel afraid? What would it be like to let me or somebody into that loneliness and fear mm -hmm. so that we can undo the pain of that together? Wow. And what you might find is as we undo the pain of that together, you don't need some of those things as much because the actual need is getting met. Oh, so beautiful. Hmm. I am. Um... I think of the many clients that have had where we've had this similar transformation, even into just noticing yeah. the thing that you're doing to try to meet a very real and honest need is actually creating the conundrum yes. that you're wrestling with. And that is, I think something personally for me, that was, that blew my mind. And, and, and I, and I think it blows my mind uh, continually every time I get to discover that with somebody, you know, in sessions, because it's like, it's a gift when someone invites you into their world. So like, oh, like when someone sits yes. in your chair and they're like, here's the toughest things that I can't figure out <laughs> and the things that have got me stumped for decades and the honor of them sharing that and being like, and inviting me into a space to think with them and to connect with them. And I almost think of Carl Rogers, like when he just talks about how, you know, when there's a therapeutic relationship, both people leave transformed Yes. in that connection, not just one. Precisely. And I loved that. And, and mm -hmm. I'm thinking about instances where like in OCD, um, you know, I've, I've treated people with um, something called tricky, tricky economy. I'm saying it wrong. Tricky economy. Long word where you pull out your hair. Yeah, yeah. Trichotillomania. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can read it. I can't say it. Um, <laughs> it's a mouthful. People, uh, they pick out their hair compulsively, uh -huh. and or um, and sometimes that includes eating your hair. Sometimes it's it's picking of the skin is very kind of adjacent to that. Um, different OCD, um, just phobias of germs is something I've worked with, and something that you'll notice, like let's say in a phobia of germs, and I've, I've talked about this in, on my podcast before, but is that a uh, if you wash your hands dozens of times a day, maybe you use hand sanitizer um, hundreds sometimes of times a day, uh, the alcohol, the sulfates and the soap will dry your hands pretty intensely. And even if you use good soap or uh, lotions and all that, you know, the, you'll get sores on your hands in, in extreme cases. And there's, uh, I've had colleagues where they've had clients where the sores get so intense that they get infected. Hmm. And, and there's a, uh, it's obvious in the case of OCD, but the thing you were doing to run away from sickness brought about sickness. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that you were trying to do to avoid the germs created an environment where the germs had more access to you. Mm -hmm. And 
and that's it's a very tangible example alcohol is the same thing like the mm -hmm. running to alcohol to fix the depression is um right creates more depression because alcohol is a depressant neurologically right yes. <laughs> and yeah and there's this almost this playful mm. irony and and uh and not to inspire any sort of shame like oh look at you look how bad you're performing but but there's this um i think this very simple but totally reasonable like for especially for a young mind or someone going through pain like that of just like well if i just try harder then it will fix it if i just press mm -hmm. in more to the thing that feels better then everything will eventually get better and then mm -hmm. when you kind of open up just the patterns of behavior like my my therapeutic orientation is very um behaviorist based and and, mm -hmm. and works within contextual behaviorism it's kind of an offshoot of bf skinner and his work and mm -hmm. and so it's it's looking at the patterns of um look at all the things you were trying to do to meet this very real and honest need mm -hmm. and how it's creating the deficit that you're trying to fill and then noticing that and immediately what our brains want to do is rush in and just fill that with shame and regret and frustration mm -hmm. and self-criticism and self-judgment or feeling overwhelmed like we just want to give up and and there's this um, fork in the road that I notice in therapy, even looping back to what we were talking about earlier, where then they either go, okay, doctor, how do I fix it? What's the right way? Which, which, which I think a lot of clinicians might step into because that's an exciting thing to be offered. That's a lot mm -hmm. of power that you could wield over somebody. Or to turn that back around, and this is kind of what I hear you saying too, what's the wisdom in what you were trying to do? And let's actually have some compassion for that side of you that was yes. really trying their best with the best knowledge of oh. the best that they were trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, Which why? is the, the antidote to shame is the connection and being able to see that the thing that we thought would exclude us from belonging actually brings us into a new way of seeing ourselves. Yeah. It's, oh, I'm just so grateful for the language that you're using about this, but I, I'm remembering these two ingredients, the one that I haven't mentioned so much. Yes, learning to see ourselves and our suffering with compassion and understand its usefulness and our purpose, but also what it is like to undo the aloneness that we feel mm -hmm. about the pain of being in the process. Mm -hmm. So when we think of the example of the person, the behavior and pulling these things apart, I think sometimes in therapy, we, we rush too quickly over, oh, what is it? been like for you yeah, yeah what is this like what has this been like for you what is it like to mm -hmm. share with me something that has been so lonely for you how is it how is it that we share this together now and because you've let me in you actually you've divided it between us how is that mm -hmm. because I think that there is as a as a human wired for interconnectedness there is something immediately both analgesic and in a way curative to undo the aloneness around our suffering, because there is pain in life. There is hardship in life. There is like, Oh, suffering and angst. And yet what might be, this is what some people would argue. I, I feel myself more in this, this camp these days than ever before. What might be unbearable about that is thinking we are alone in it. We are the only mm. one that somehow we are separate because of this suffering instead of actually using that to bring us deeper into connection with other people and with ourselves. Mm. So in therapy, we have this incredible ability to help the person see the transformance, help the person see what is wise in you, what has been taking care of you this whole time, but also 
how is it that we share it together? And that because you and I are here together, you're no longer alone in this. Wow. Yeah. I, um, you, you had a line, I forget where I heard it from you first. You, you say it pretty mm -hmm. often, but just this idea that we are often hurt by people. And then we also heal with people. Oh, yeah. We were hurt yeah. in community and we often forget that we heal. In yes. And yeah. often these strategies like we're talking about, and it feels kind of isolated because we're talking about OCD and eating disorders <laughs> and alcohol. Right. And, and, but uh, all together that these yes. strategies often are resorted to out of a place of aloneness. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they're a salve over the top of a wound that is sometimes being overlooked, sometimes being caused, sometimes mm -hmm. not being, I don't know, it, it depends on people's stories, but there's this transformation that, that you're keying into and putting so beautifully that it's not just realizing, oh, I'm doing it wrong and then now do it right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, yeah. oh, I did it wrong. Why did I, why have I been stuck in doing it wrong? Yeah. There's lots of reasons, but, but at the core of it is um, we need to move towards connection and closeness mm. with people that we care about and that matter to us and that the healing isn't about performing it better. Mm. Healing is about moving into something. Um, I don't know. There's so many ways to describe it, but yes. something more gentle, something more compassionate, something more, right. something more embodied. There you go. Something that feels like you don't have to cut off a part of yourself in order to feel okay. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Something, and you put it really beautifully in your book, um, uh, Mother's Daughter's and Body Image. It was the first time um, just being in school and learning about different various disorders and, and suffering in different ways where you're like, that there is this core fear of taking up space, mm. you know, when you're struggling with an eating disorder and feeling like, disappearing and feeling like getting smaller is very much tied into this feeling of aloneness this mm -hmm. this feeling that i can't take up space here and i don't deserve to take up space here or i don't want to crudely summarize your book how would you put it how would i put what i mean you were doing a great job oh, how would i put how would i put what <laughs> yeah that taking up taking up that space taking up that, that space that fearfulness within uh -huh. maybe part of your journey but also with your clients working with eating disorders that that there's that connection is unavailable to me. I don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm hearing it. That, that was my synthesis it. of what you were saying. You did great. You did great. All right. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the core feature, as I'm hearing you articulate that, is this shame. Like I need to somehow disappear, and that's what shame does. It says like, be you are already outside, and you're going to be hurt, and you're going to be rejected, and humiliated, and criticized by being more visible. So become less of who you are as a way, again, here's the wisdom in this, like a form of self-protection, mm -hmm. a form of saying, well, I, do, I don't want to be hurt even more. I don't want to be rejected. So this is a way that I've learned to take care of myself, but I can't see and understand any of those behaviors without understanding the social and relational, the interpersonal context within which all of us develop. And mm -hmm. the, the, I think the evidence that really has compelled me and shaped so much of my framework is to understand, ironically, from the hard science perspective, from interpersonal neurobiology, mm -hmm. that it is relationships in early stages of our life that shape our brain. Mm -hmm. They actually mold the structure mm -hmm. and function of our anatomical tissues. And, and when we understand that, we realize that there is a 
there is a pattern, a story, uh, a felt sense about who we are that we carry around within us that feels very much like it's about us, but is often this conglomerate of ex interpersonal relational experiences that we have had reflected back to us and not always because the people around us were healthy, sometimes because the people around us, they too were in some sort of survival strategy. And so often we have this, this interpersonal dynamic that says, uh, your emotion is too much, or, you know, don't show up this way, or it's going to cost you connection if you engage with this part of yourself. But when you layer that on top of a sociocultural framework in which women particularly, boys and men increasingly so, are told your, your body is the currency for you to achieve value and it has to appear in this particular form for you to get worth. It feels like a pretty clear equation that many of us would end up with a kind of body-focused pathology given like interpersonal ruptures that have been unprocessed and a world that says, but you can belong if you look like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a pretty clear recipe for why so many of us get appearance fixated all the way to the point that that would be destructive um, in a more long-term obvious way. Mm -hmm. So there's, there are a number of theorists and kind of working philosophies that we have hypotheses about where eating disorders come from. One of my favorite is from Dr. Neva Paran, who's a scholar out of Toronto, who's given, you know, 30, 40 years to look at the intersection of culture, um, politics, embodiment, emotion, and eating disorders, and has identified that eating disorders are really disorders of restricted agency. So instead of simplifying it and saying it's about control, like, do I have a sense of power to act in the world and act on the world? Or have I been made to feel like that's actually going to endanger me um, and that I need to somehow close in on myself to not only survive, but to be desirable? Wow. And that's, I mean, there are many, many ways that we can layer on other research, like serotonin hypotheses around how in anorexia, it actually corrects a serotonin imbalance for some people who have disrupted serotonin levels growing up or intergenerational trauma and the way that we are nurtured interpersonally as women, particularly to, to engage in dieting as a form of connection with other women. I mean, there's just like so many different angles that you can look at it through, but ultimately what I want to come back to when I think about eating disorders or anything else is what is the pain that was underneath that this is trying to solve? And how do we get back to that? And that might be one thing for one person and something else for another person. But ultimately, if we can see the function of the disorder in terms of how it was helping and the pain that it was trying to help with, and we can undo the aloneness around that, then we can start to create the, the container within which thriving can happen, healing can happen. That's so well put. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, a big part of my practice has been in compassion-focused therapy, which I is you know, um, like the work of Paul Gilbert and Russell Colts and, and kind of this, it was kind of created in response to a lot of CBT, like specifically for people who didn't respond well to cognitive behavioral therapy right. for depression right. and, uh, and trying to kind of maybe go at it at a different approach and, and, uh, and not necessarily getting caught up in the 
in the mind games of trying to prove wrong irrational thoughts or trying to just kind of create behavioral activation and just if you just get in a different environment then you'll act better and and it was trying to get at the standards that we set for ourselves and and then how we motivate ourselves to hit those standards and and that's a big part of my theoretical orientation the, the research that that i've really absorbed has been okay how do the language games how do the hmm. um the standards that either we've accepted from our culture or from our families or from our peers or for people that we respect and that we love, not even people that wish malice on us, people that mm -hmm. are very well intended. How do those standards affect the ways that we um, try to earn their respect or their acceptance? And, mm -hmm. and focusing in within that model on compassion as being this fundamental motivator that maybe subverts the, um, the loneliness and the anger and the malice that we so often mm. point towards ourselves. Yes. And, and I think what I love about your focus on aloneness and on that connection is that it brings it full circle. And I think something I've learned in even just this conversation as we're talking is, is the importance, um, the emphasis that needs to be placed on connecting with other people as a means to facilitate that process of having compassion for yourself and then that in the eyes of people that love us. Absolutely. Because we, we learn these self-critical scripts from other people yeah. Yeah. and the therapist can be the stand-in to help you learn the compassionate script. Mm -hmm. And it really, Oh, I have such a hard time with this. The rhetoric that goes around at times, you can only really love somebody else or be loved when you love yourself. Mm -hmm. And the, the hard science actually tells us like, it's not we true. learn. No, it's not true. We yeah. learn to love ourselves and each other at the same time. Mm. And there's a process going on here when we can receive affection, that we can actually start to build a new introject, a new story about ourselves to correct some of the dysfunctional mm. stories that were handed to us. Yeah. This connection with the other person the, through the modeling of compassion could be our first taste in figuring out how to do that within ourselves. Mm. I love what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm learning that afresh right now too. And uh, I've just been paying more attention, attention to Sue Johnson's work in EFT and, yes. and uh, focus. I, I work out of the Gottman method for doing couples mm -hmm. work, which is another kind of expression of behaviorism. I think, I don't know mm -hmm. if you describe it that way. That, that's how I think of it. It's, it's very kind of, I've heard it described. Yeah. I've have training in Gottman as well. And I think oh, that's cool, cool. kind of my paradigm or my way of making sense of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, it's, it, I love the Gottman method. That's, that's what I use, uh, full time, but, and just out of curiosity been diving into EFT and there's been this cool piece to, that I've been learning afresh and now maybe it's in the Gottman method too, but maybe I just haven't absorbed it there yet, but it's, um, just this idea of the attachment and the bond being the transformational piece for mm -hmm. inner growth. And it's like, man, how do I say it in not such an abstract and esoteric way? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that it's, it's, it's in the connection that we learn how to become more open to the connection. Mm -hmm. and it's within the connection that we also become more connected with ourselves. Yes. And just, we're not these solo acts. I think psychology and in some ways has almost perpetrated this idea that if we can just reorganize the inner self, like we're testing things in a test tube and just rearrange um, almost in this really severe inner contemplation, if we can just 
fit all the ideas and all the experiences and describe them in just the right ways. If we can just process the trauma, you know, internally, um, then we can be fixed and then we can feel open to connection mm. when often the vulnerability that's required to enter to, into the connection is the environment in which the yes. healing and the processing happens. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's hard because I think sometimes we, we just want to feel safe and that's the most normal thing in the world. Mm. And opening mm -hmm. up vulnerably, even to someone in the past that's hurt us, like trying to reconnect with a parent, trying to reconnect with a spouse that broke our trust, trying to uh, connect with a child that's been critical of us. It, it feels like um, this impossible task where in order to reach the connection in the transformative piece that will bring me into a deeper place where I'm more mm -hmm. myself, I have to enter into a place where I could be hurt mm -hmm. or I could be rejected again. And I don't know, I guess I'm a little, I'm rambling at this point. There's so many pieces jumping into my mind. Oh, I but, love it. But uh, love yeah, it. it's, it's within the connection. There's a real risk and it could go wrong, but I guess maybe what I, my opinion on the matter is that it's worth it. Is, is that within, yeah. uh, because yeah. maybe C.S. Lewis has, has a funny quote. He's like, yeah, you could, you could protect your heart. You could lock it away in a stone cold, like prison away from anyone, but it'll die there. Okay. It'll be safe that it'll be so rigid and, and cut off from everyone else that it won't be in existence much worth having. Um, yeah, mm. I think that vulnerability, that openness, that gentleness towards the self, that priority of connection are all things that, I mean, along with a lot of other offers and people in my life that have been guiding me towards these things, you've been a really fundamental part of that. Mm. And, uh, and I think that you you put words to a lot, of, especially in a very vulnerable season of my life back in 2015, 2016, where I felt like I, I didn't know what to believe. You, um, you gave words to this ache in my heart and then invited me into a place of being vulnerable and opening up myself to connection instead of just pushing for safety and control and locking things down. Um, mm. And wow. you embodied that. And I'm so this whole conversation just feels like mm. so fluid and normal to me because it's just been part <laughs> of the atmosphere. Your work has just been part rolling around in my brain for many years. And so I'm so thankful. So thankful. Oh, wow. I'm, yeah, I am too. I'm too. Thank you again for sharing that with me. That feels so meaningful to hear. And mm -hmm. it's... Uh, I was just loving listening to you and the language that you were using to describe some of the things. I think language is such an interesting bridge between worlds. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I loved hearing the way that you, the framework that you were using, the way that you were languaging mm -hmm. some of these things that we both share and understand yeah, together. So cool. just what a gift I was just taking that and going, wow, that's so well said. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to talk again. I hope this uh -huh. is our last conversation. Yeah, likewise. Mm -hmm. You're coming out with a book soon in October. Yeah, it was supposed to be out, I guess, like earlier this month, but then, you know, how 2020 and 2021 have been <laughs> really, things have really shifted around. So it'll be out October 12th in the States. And then I think out January 1st, 2022 in Canada, uh, but it's called the wisdom of your body. Mm -hmm. And there will be some pieces of this in there, mm -hmm. but really looking at embodiment, what does it mean to be a body instead of just thinking of ourselves as people um, as minds that are carried around by like a meat taxi or carried around by this like flesh suit, 
what would it mean for us to fully inhabit ourselves and looking as well at some of the barriers to that, like trauma and marginalization of the body, chronic pain, body image. I mean, there's the stories we've heard about sexuality or spirituality, things that take us away from our experience of being a body and really trying to weave everything back together to say, well, this is actually you. You're not just a mind. You, you are your body, but maybe that means more than you were ever told it could. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Well, hopefully Thank we can you. talk again and I'd love yeah. to those ideas more and understand more about what you're writing about and i'm following your work closely always so thank you so much for this conversation what a gift oh my pleasure thanks for having me